Father, we come before you now once again in our, in our service and we ask that you would come, that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, enabling us to see and to understand, to grapple with what you are doing here in your word and what it means for us. Father, may you quiet our minds, may you quiet our hearts, help us to focus on your word. Lord, I thank you for it. I thank you that it is a light to us. As the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, it is a a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. May your word this morning build up the weak. May it humble the proud. May it bring back the person who may be wandering. May it save the lost, Lord. And may all of this be pleasing to you and may it make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've ever read the Bible or if you have any knowledge of the Bible whatsoever, then you probably know that the the biblical authors, especially the psalm writers, will often use words like valley, pit, Darkness, night, Sheol, and others, which Sheol just means uh, the grave. It references the land of the dead. And they'll use other words similar to these to describe their their trials or hard experiences. It's it's just a poetic way of describing struggles and, and times of suffering. And they're fitting words, aren't they? If you think about it. Because when we're struggling or when we're suffering in some way, this is how we often feel. We feel as if we are walking in the darkness, as if we are in the valley of the shadow of death, as David says in Psalm 23, a very famous psalm. Or we feel as if we have sunk down into into a pit and can't get out, like we've had all our joy sucked from us and we feel like we're in the land of lifelessness, referring to that word, Sheol. These are the hard places. They are the places that we never want to go. They are the places that we pray against. But if we're honest with one another, and also if we read the Bible carefully, I think we will admit and see that they are often the places that God uses to give us the clearest vision of who He is, and also a clear vision of who we are. And as an example of this, I want to read to you from this little book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers. You've heard me read from it before. I'm going to read from the prayer that's called The Valley of Vision, from where the little book gets its name. I want you to listen to this man's prayer. Whoever he was, I'm not sure. He prays to the Lord saying, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see Thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold Thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, 
that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. That's a beautiful prayer. In fact, it's my favorite prayer in the whole entire book, in in that little book there. And it was written in the valley. As he said when he opened up the prayer, Lord, you have brought me to the valley where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. A beautiful prayer. And you see in that prayer such a clear vision of who God is, who He is as a sinner, the one who's praying the prayer. A clear vision of the Christian life and a clear vision of His own desperate need for God. And again, if you read the Bible carefully, you will see that some of the most insightful and beautiful prayers or songs were written in a place of great struggle or a place of great suffering. That's where they were written. That's where they were formed. That's where the the desire to seek God in that way came from. People struggling, suffering, for various reasons. And why is that? Why is it that it's often in those places that prayers like that or songs similar to that are crafted in song or prayed? Well, I think it's because in those moments God removes and He strips away all the resources, all the distractions, and maybe even the idols that we were unknowingly clinging to and worshiping instead of Him. He strips them away and He reminds us or He shows us for the first time that what we really need is Him and the saving work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all of those things, not all of those distractions, not all of those idols, even though they may be good things. He shows us that what we need is not all of these things over here, but that what we are in desperate need of is of Himself, of His Son, of the Gospel, of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment when God puts us there, we realize... We realize this truth. We realize it in our mind. We realize it in our heart. We realize it in our very souls. And we are filled with praise. Filled with praise even in the darkest of moments. Even as we are in the midst of the valley. Even as we are in the pit. Even as we are in the midst of of Sheol, the, the place of the dead, which it feels like it. The place of lifelessness where we've had all our joy sucked from us. We see that all we have is God and to have Him is to have all that we need. Now, what does all this have to do with Jonah and chapter 2, what we're going to be looking at this morning, right? 
Well, this is where we find Jonah as we come to chapter 2, isn't it? We find him in a place of great distress where he's crying out to God for help. And God's going to use this situation to remind Jonah that he is a sinner in need of God's grace. And he's also going to use it to remind Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord and belongs to Him alone. So in other words, God is going to give Jonah a good reminder of who he is and who God is. And Jonah, as we're going to see, he's going to grasp some of the picture anyways. He's going to make some progress, but at the end of the prayer, we're going to see that Jonah still has much to learn. So he's going to make some progress from where we've been seeing him as we've been traveling through this book verse by verse. But we're also going to see that he still has much to learn. He still has a lot of progress that he needs to make. So if you would join me now in reading this prayer beginning in verse 1 all the way down to verse 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now before we walk through Jonah's prayer together, I just want to mention to you, you need to have in mind that as we're walking through it together, that this prayer is filled with both literal and poetic language. So just keep that in mind. It's, it's almost like a song, you know, one of the songs there as we, as we walk through it together. So in verse 1, we read that Jonah prayed to the Lord from his, the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. The author, he just comments there. If you remember last week, we saw that Jonah had been cast into the sea by the sailors, sinking down into the, to the sea. And God had appointed this fish to come and to swallow Jonah. And so now he just says that while Jonah was in the belly of this fish, he cries out to God. And then in verse 2, saying, and then we see the prayer that Jonah then prayed while he was there. And in verse 2 we read this. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. What we see here in verse 2 is essentially what the prayer is about, what we're going to see in it. You could say it's the summary of the prayer. So Jonah says, 
I called out to the Lord out of my distress. There's the first part of verse 1. Then he says again, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. So Jonah cries to the Lord. He's in distress and he cries to God. And then what else do we see? And he answered me. Again, and you heard my voice. So that's the summary of the prayer right there. That's what we're going to see as we walk through it. Jonah is in this great distress. He cries out to the Lord in the midst of it. And then the Lord answers him. And you can break the prayer down into those two parts. Because in verses 3 to the first part of verse 6, those verses are mainly expanding about describing... They're mainly expanding on Jonah's distress and how he cried out to the Lord in the midst of it. So verses 3 to the first part of verse 6, that's what it's mainly focusing on. Jonah's distress and the fact that he's crying out to God. And then the second part of verse 6 down to verse 10, those verses are expanding upon the fact that God hears and answers His prayer. So that's how we're going to handle it as we walk through Jonah's prayer. So verses 3 to the first part of verse 6, Jonah's distress and his cry to God. Now within this part of the prayer, as Jonah is describing his distress and his cry to God, we can see a few things going on. First, we see him describing his distress. He says in verse 3, He was cast into the seas, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded him. Waves and billows passed over him. Then in verses 5 and 6, he says that the waters closed in over him to take his life. The deep surrounded him. Weeds were wrapped about his head as he sunk to the root of the mountains. He went down to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. So this is the distress that Jonah is in. And I have to say that it's a pretty significant amount of distress. And I think you would agree. Because Jonah is in poetic language describing the fact that he's about to die. That's what he's describing there with his language. He's been cast into the sea. He's sinking down into the sea. Weeds are being wrapped about his head. You know, he's poetically sinking down to the roots of the mountains. He's sinking down to the land of Sheol, to the land of the dead, and it's about to close in upon him. He's about to die. This is the distress that he's in. Second thing that we see is that Jonah acknowledges the sovereignty of God over his situation. So look back up at verse 3. Did you notice who Jonah says cast him into the sea? Does he say the sailors cast him into the sea? Because that's what we saw in the last episode, right? No, Jonah doesn't say that. He says, for you, speaking of God, for you cast me into the deep. Again, in verse 3, he says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. So the sailors are the one who threw Jonah into the sea. We saw that, and yes, Jonah knows that as well. I mean, he 
watched them pick him up. He felt them grab hold of him and chunk him out into the sea. He knows that the sailors are the one who threw him into the sea. But he also acknowledges the fact that although they were the ones that physically threw him in there, God is all the while in the background orchestrating it all. God is ultimately the one who has cast Jonah into the sea. God is ultimately the one who has put Jonah in the situation that he's in. Thirdly, we see that Jonah acknowledges the discipline, excuse me, the Lord's discipline upon his sin. The first part of verse 4, he says this, Then I said, in the midst of his distress as this is going on, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah says he's being driven away from the sight of the Lord as all of this is going on. So Jonah knows that it is because of his sin that the Lord has put him in this situation. Jonah realizes that. That's why he's in the predicament that he's in. It's because of his sin, because of his disobedience to God. And we're going to see in a moment why God has put him in this position. It's not to be mean to Jonah or to do bad things to Jonah, but to put him in a place where he repents of his sin and he cries out to his God. But even in the midst of the second part of verse 4 there, as Jonah is recognizing and acknowledging that it's because of his sin that he's in this situation, he also acknowledges the Lord's mercy and His grace. He says in the second part of verse 4, which I think I just got that mixed up, so what I was just talking about was the first part of verse 4. This is the second part of verse 4. So he says in the second part of verse 4, that he shall look again upon the Lord's temple, which just references God's presence. Some scholars think that Jonah in this moment is talking about the heavenly temple of God's presence, and some argue and say, no, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, physical, earthly Jerusalem. Well, either way, whatever Jonah is referencing, it's the presence of the Lord. He knows, ultimately, that while God is disciplining him, driving him away from his sight, He's not going to utterly forsake him. He's going to enter in, once again, into the presence of God. Whether it's the presence there at Jerusalem, or the presence of God in His heavenly abode. Either way, Jonah knows that God is ultimately not going to forsake him because of His mercy and His grace. Which, again, testifies to the theme of God's mercy and grace that we've been looking at, right? You know, God's mercy and grace over and over, again, being shown upon sinful people who don't deserve it, again and again, being shown on Jonah, being shown on the pagan sailors that we were looking at last week. Again, it testifies to that great theme that flows through this book. Now the second part of the prayer. God hears Jonah's prayer 
and He delivers him from his distress. And as we come to this part of the prayer, I want us to just stop for a moment and think about how amazing it is that God actually hears this man's prayer. Because think about how the story's been going so far. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah heard that word. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed that word and he turned and he ran from the presence of God. He gets on a ship headed to a place called Tarshish. You know, the furthest place that he knew to go. While he's on the ship, God pursues him with a storm. And while God sends the storm, he ignores God most of the time while he's on the boat. He pays no attention to the sailors that are about to perish and are in need of salvation. He stays in the bottom of the ship. He goes to sleep. He ignores their need. He ignores God and the fact that God has brought the storm because of his sin. And he only acknowledges the sailors and talks to them when they actually go down and force him to talk to him. And then finally he acknowledges God after he talks about who he is ethnically. You know, they ask him the question, who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew. And then he mentions God. And then he gets cast into the sea and he doesn't finally cry out to God until he's you know in the depths of the sea about to die. Jonah does not deserve to be heard by God. You know, the whole time, Jonah has done nothing but show that he is worthy of God's judgment. Not his grace. Not his mercy. Not his salvation. Jonah deserves to drown. That's what Jonah deserves. He does not deserve for God to hear his prayer and then to answer it. But God doesn't let Jonah drown. He hears his prayer, and as we're going to see in a moment, he he answers it. Now, similar to the first part of the prayer, we can we can see a few different things going on as Jonah describes God uh, answering his prayer and delivering him. The first thing we see in the second part of this prayer is that he acknowledges that he has been saved by grace alone. Jonah acknowledges that he's been saved by grace alone. That he didn't do anything to be saved. He didn't work for it. God saved him by His grace. Second part of verse 6, he says... Well, look at the the whole part of, of... of verse 6. So he's describing him descending down to the roots of the mountains where he's about to die. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Then in the second part of verse 6, he says, Yet, while this is happening, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Again, the presence of God. Jonah's prayer comes before the presence of God. So there's nothing that Jonah can do to save himself. He is completely helpless in this moment, and he is as good as dead unless the Lord intervenes. And the Lord 
according to His mercy and according to His grace, He does intervene. He sends what? He sends the fish, the the fish of salvation. He sends the fish to, to go and to swallow Jonah and to save him. Because if God doesn't send the fish, He's going to drown and He's going to die. But this is how the Lord intervenes. And I think it's kind of ironic that you know, as we're looking at Jonah's situation that he's in now, it gives us a good picture of our own situation in sin. You know, what we look like in our own sin. Like Jonah, because of our sin, we have sunk down far into the depths and we can no longer help ourselves. The only difference is that Jonah in his situation, is almost dead. Whereas we, in our sin, in and of ourselves, are already dead. And this is how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? Spiritually speaking, I want you to listen as I read what Paul says there in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, as he's describing our state. And I want you to think, about how similar it is to Jonah's situation now. So Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That's what we look like in our sin. There is no, hey, we're going to help out a little bit as God seeks to save us. No, you're dead, and you can't do anything. You're helpless. You're like Jonah, sinking into the depths of the sea, except for you don't have any life. You know, you're not able to swim or anything like that. You're dead, you're sinking, and as Jonah says, yet you brought my life up from the pit. When God saves you, when He saves anybody, it's because... He saves. Not because you do something that makes you worthy to be saved. It's because of His great mercy and His great love that He has upon sinners who are undeserving. He reaches down into the depths and He pulls you out because of His grace and mercy. And that's what He does to Jonah here as he's sinking into the sea. I mean, He doesn't literally with His hand reach down but he appoints a fish to go 
into the depths and seek Jonah out and swallow him so that he doesn't die. Second thing that we see in this part of the prayer is that Jonah says that he is not like those who worships idols. Verses 8 and 9. Jonah says that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But he, on the other hand, will sacrifice to the Lord with thanksgiving and will pay what he has vowed. Now what Jonah says here is true. I mean, those who worship vain idols, which just means empty idols, they're not real, those who continually worship idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Because the only person who is able to show steadfast love is God and God alone, the living God. So that's a true statement. And also, as we read this, it seems that, that Jonah some, he shows some form of repentance, right? As he responds to God saving him. He says that he's going to with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to the Lord. And then what he has vowed, he will pay. Now, I don't know what vows he's made. Maybe he, maybe the vow just speaks of what he's just said in the first part of verse 9 where he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to the Lord. Maybe that's the vow. Or maybe he's in this moment saying to the Lord, okay, yeah, I'll go to Nineveh. You know, I, I promise I'll go. You know, I'll go, I'll preach to them, I'll, I'll say whatever it is you want me to say, I'll go. But just please save me. Or thank you for saving me. But also, as we read these verses, I think we can still see some underlying sin that Jonah has not repented of or is still unaware of. Because I wonder who he has in mind as he says, those who worship vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. I wonder who he's thinking about as he says that. Because remember, he just got thrown off the ship where he was watching these sailors cry out to all their gods. So I wonder if he has in mind those sailors. Or, I wonder if he has in mind the Ninevites that God has called him to go and to preach to. I wonder if that's who he has in mind as he says, those who forsake or those who worship vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Is Jonah saying that they're helpless? That in a way it's kind of worthless to go and to preach to these people because they've forsaken their hope of steadfast love? Well, I don't know exactly what Jonah has in his mind and in his heart there, but I think it's safe to say, and because also what chapter 4 is going to reveal to us a little later on, that Jonah still has some underlying sin that he needs to repent of. Because in chapter 4, God's going to have mercy on the Ninevites. And Jonah's going to again pray. But that prayer is not going to be filled with thankfulness. It's going to be filled with anger and resentment toward God because He's shown mercy on these people. 
So I think there's still some underlying issues. Even as Jonah praises God for his salvation, and even as he partially, anyways, repents of his sin. And I also want to, it's kind of a side note here. So last week, toward the end of the sermon, I mentioned that You know that the sailors, after they had cast Jonah into the sea, they realized that God was the one who was at work there. They exceedingly feared Him, and then they offered sacrifices to God. They made vows to Him, and we said that that looked like they had genuinely received salvation. But that Jonah, on the other hand, hadn't he hasn't received a similar salvation. I mean, he's been saved by the fish, but not in a similar way. So what I meant by that was not that I think that Jonah is currently an unbeliever. I didn't mean that. I just meant that the sailors have been shown their sin, they've repented of it, and God has saved them. Whereas Jonah, on the other hand, like we're talking about here, he still has some other some underlying sins that he still needs to be shown, to be revealed to by God Himself. So that's kind of what I was going, that's what I was talking about there when I made that comment. I think Jonah is a believer, although he's a very stubborn one, and he's living in unbelief and in sin, and God is slowly, you know, working in his life, showing that to him. Alright, so enough of the side note, back on track here. So the third thing that we see is that Jonah acknowledges that salvation belongs to the Lord. So at the end of his prayer, right after he says that he with, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to God and that he will pay what he vows, what he has vowed, he says that salvation belongs to the Lord. And by bringing this up, Jonah is keying in on one of the key themes that the Bible has flowing through it. That salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, the Bible is over and over and over again bringing up that truth that salvation belongs to God and it belongs to Him alone. And this shows that Jonah knows his Bible, right? He knows it. He knows what the Old Testament, what he had in his day anyways, he knows that this is what the Bible is ultimately about. That salvation belongs to God, and that's what he picks up on as he says it here. And also, if you were to dig into this prayer, you would see that Jonah's prayer makes references to a number of the Psalms, like Psalm 3, Psalm 5, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 31, Psalm 42, Psalm 50. Psalm 65, Psalm 88, and Psalm 120. That's ten psalms that Jonah makes reference to as he prays this prayer. He knows his Bible, which is pretty impressive, you know, as he prays this prayer to be recounting that much scripture as he cries out to God. And although we can see that there's still some some work that Jonah needs in his own life and in his own heart. I wonder if that's how we pray. <laughs> you know, as we look at this prayer, the example of Jonah's prayer, although it's not perfect, like very much ours are not perfect, 
This man knows his Bible and that's what he prays. That's what he cries out to God with. How God has revealed Himself in His Word. Jonah is thinking about what God has said about Himself throughout these Psalms as he prays and as he cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord. But again, speaking of the imperfectness of his prayer, I don't think that he completely understands what this means yet, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, I do think that Jonah's made some headway here in his prayer, like I just mentioned. But to say that salvation belongs to the Lord means that He is the only one who is able to save. And also, it means that He can save whoever He wants, whenever He wants. And as chapter 4 will reveal, Jonah is only happy about this truth when God is saving those whom he thinks should be saved. So he still has much to learn about this truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now there's a fourth thing that we see in the second part of this prayer, and it's that God saves Jonah even though his repentance is partial and it's not perfect. After Jonah prays to the Lord, you know, after we, we see him cry out with thanksgiving that salvation belongs to the Lord, we see the author comment that the fish then, or excuse me, that the Lord speaks to the fish, and then the fish vomits Jonah out upon the dry land. So God hears his prayer. He answers it, means he's already answered it in part by saving him with the fish. And now he continues to hear Jonah's prayer and answers it by telling the fish to vomit Jonah out upon the dry land. And this again testifies to the mercy, grace, and steadfast love of God and the fact that it is indeed great. And you know, he shows the same mercy, he shows the same grace, he shows the same steadfast love upon us as well. Because like we were mentioning a moment ago, you know, our prayers, like Jonah's, are often imperfect. They're often partial. There's often sin still mingled in as we pray. You know, we often do not know how to pray as we ought to pray. But yet God still hears our prayers He still answers them. He still provides salvation for us again and again and again. So, God had put Jonah in a place of great need in order to give him a good look at who he is as a helpless sinner and also who God is as a gracious Savior. And Jonah in this situation, he he did get some of the picture. He did learn. He did make some progress. He did see some of his sin. I mean, he recognized that he was running from God, being disobedient. But we also see that he still has some sin and some misunderstanding that needs to be revealed by the Lord. And the Lord, as we continue in this book, He's going to 
continue to be faithful to bring this before Jonah. He's going to continue to, to show grace upon Jonah, to continue to show mercy upon Jonah, to reveal his sin, to show him his misunderstanding, and to continually reveal himself, speaking of God, to Jonah and his great mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, and that Jonah himself, just like everybody else, whether they're Jew or they're Gentile, live solely because of God and His mercy and that alone. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue in our series of the book of Jonah, we, we thank You for Your wonderful work that is put on display here. The mercy, the grace, and the steadfast love that you have continually showed upon Jonah in the midst of his sin, sinking down into the depths of the sea, being helpless, unable to save himself, but yet you and your mercy reaching down and providing a way of salvation. Lord, you've done the same thing for us as we were talking about a moment ago. We are helpless in our sin, we're dead in our in our sin and our trespasses and our disobedience against you. We have nowhere to go. We have no resources to turn to. We are helpless and we are in need of salvation. And you and your great mercy, great grace, and great steadfast love, you have provided that way of salvation in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for it, Lord. And we continually pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know it, that you would press it upon their hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.